welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. Today, Guest host James Presswich and I will be talking with David Vorick about Skynet, distributed storage, a new content monetization solution, and share some ideas on how to wrestle back control from the algorithms that are leading us astray. But before we start in, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Ave. Ave is an open source and non-custodial protocol where users can earn interest on deposits and borrow assets. Ave also features access to innovative DeFi building blocks like flash loans, a topic we have covered a couple times on the show. Just as a reminder, flash loans are a tool that lets developers borrow instantly without collateral as long as they return the liquidity to the protocol within one block transaction. They are also introducing a new feature, which is called credit delegation, where users can delegate their credit to another person who can borrow against it. If you're interested, Aave has a grants program for anyone building anything that contributes to the ecosystem. Check out the Aave developer portal to learn more. I've added the link in the show notes. You can also visit Aave at aave.com or join their Discord channel. So thank you again, Aave. Now here is our interview with David Vorick. So today, guest host James Prestwich and I are catching up with David Vorick, who is the founder of Skynet and the CEO of Skynet Labs. Welcome, David. Hi, it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. And also, hi, James. Hi, Anna. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about, I mean, I, I actually just want to find out more about what this project is. I know it's had a few kind of iterations and name changes along the way to becoming Skynet. Um, I also want to touch on the vision that's sort of presented through this project for the decentralized web, which is a little bit different, or it's, I should say it seems very all-encompassing compared to some of the other projects that we've had on the show. I also want to, at the end, if we can, talk a little bit about how privacy could potentially play a part. I think as a starting point, let's talk about the name Skynet. I mean, is it is it a reference to a movie that I actually never saw, but I hear involved robots? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I, I think that Filecoin actually has a really good name, and it was just my goal to come up with something better. And All right. I, I like Skynet because it's aggressive. It's this really big force that like took over all of humanity mm. and just caused a lot of, it, it just, it changed the world a lot. Um, and so of course we aren't, we aren't trying to like enslave humanity. We're trying to set it free. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I just like the I like the aura that Skynet has, and I felt like it's worth being aggressive. Uh, the other thing is that it's also kind of a kind of a warning slash reminder because these decentralized technologies, like they Skynet in the in the lore, found out that it had an off switch. It got mad and and it turned off its off switch, and then oh. humanity lost control of it. And we're we're starting from a place where it it doesn't have an off switch, and so it's kind of kind of a reminder, like at least be a little bit careful because if it does if it does turn into something menacing, we may not be able to get it under control. And I think that's true not not just of Skynet, of course, it's also true of Bitcoin and and a lot of these yeah. decentralized techs. But yeah, so I just I felt like there were a lot of uh, a lot of nice points uh, encapsulated by the name. I mean, I want to revisit this a little bit later in the conversation because I think that is a, a topic that we should all be thinking about. 
the this road to the decentralized web. We should be thinking about like what that actually will mean. Yeah. Okay, so the Skynet team project company that's the the name that you that you have now for this project but it wasn't always called skynet so can you tell me a little bit about like the road to skynet yeah so we started off as the saya team uh we made a decentralized cloud storage blockchain and saya had a big token focus to it and it also just had a lot of capabilities that over time people ingrained and so people kind of understand that Saya doesn't do file sharing. Saya is for personal data. Uh, if you lose your local machine, um, it, it can be a challenge to get your files back. So there are all these limitations associated with the Saya technology and just this focus on, on personal stuff and not on web stuff or sharing stuff. And so when we developed a new extension to the protocol, which we called initially Download by Root, it was a really simple primitive just all, all that went out the window. Now, suddenly the SIA protocol with this one tiny addition is capable of doing web stuff. It's capable of sharing files. It's capable of an open data model. And, and so um, even though the technology is basically exactly the same as just a tiny little tweak, you know, it's a tiny little tweak that just like removes a dam from a river. Whoa. You know, every everything changes. Um, and we, we felt that to kind of get out of the limitations associated with the Saya brand, uh, uh, rebranding was merited. And, and kind of along with this, we're, we're moving pretty far away from the token model. I don't, I don't think we want to be focused on the Saya coin anymore. We, we want to be focused on the next generation of social media apps and have Saya coin be this kind of background thing run by a, a separate entity. So the, the Sia ecosystem is actually splitting. It's not that oh, wow. Sia is becoming Skynet. It's that okay. the parent company of Sia is kind of sp spinning out a Sia foundation. Um, and my co-founder is going to the Sia foundation. And the Sia foundation is going to get a dev fee. So so it's being left in very good hands, right? The, the person at the top of the Sia foundation has been with the Sia project the whole time, knows it very mm -hmm. well, is very passionate about it. And then myself and, and most of the engineers are going to be focusing on, on Skynet. And so uh, this has caused a little bit of drama and tension within the community, but I, I can assure you that like at the top level, between me and my co-founder, the people joining the Sci Foundation, the people staying at Skynet Labs, everybody is very good friends. Everyone's aligned around a similar end goal. Uh, and, and we think that overall, this split is going to allow each party to focus on uh, what's most important to them. When did you add that feature that you just mentioned when you started to experiment with this new thing? I'm just trying to figure out timeline wise. Yeah. So that was in uh, November, 2019. Okay. Um, so I guess mm -hmm. about 14 months ago now, just, just over a year ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, David, you and I have known each other for a number of years now and uh, have talked a lot about how, you know, amazing an open data model would be. Was there a technical reason that you didn't add that feature earlier? Yeah, I just thought it was really difficult to do. And honestly, the download by root feature that ended up being pivotal, uh, that that's not even enough to do the open data model. But I was, I was in Zurich struggling with a really bad bout of insomnia. Um, so I was awake in the middle of the night and I was just like, wait, if we did X, Y, Z, 
we could have very uh, simple file sharing. We could have a low complexity, high reliability way to share files throughout this site ecosystem. Um, and as I kind of dug through it, it almost felt kind of silly because we'd had the primitives that we needed to do this for maybe three years now. We, we, if we had had the idea, we probably could have implemented it in early 2017. But we didn't have the idea as often, you know, research goes until late 2019. And we had the proof of concept working pretty much by New Year's Day. Um, so it was, it was like 45 days between the idea and having the first example on the network. Hmm. Hmm. So it was mostly uh, lacking that flash of insight. Yeah. And then the real power uh, of the open data model came when we had the idea of SkyDB. And so we, we had a way to achieve SkyDB via a really complicated L2 on top of Handshake, uh, kind of a, an L2 that straddled Handshake and Saya. And then again, it was, it was a similar sort of just, um, I think, around June of 2020, so barely six months ago. Um, there was just a flash of insight that's like, wait a minute. If we set up this this structure, we can get everything that we you know we thought would take this this eighteen month L two project can now be done in three months flat. And again, to the to the dismay of some of the people in the community, we literally dropped everything. We we're like, this, oh, this wow. is the most important thing we've ever come up with. <laughs> and the entire engineering team uh, just went to zero on all other projects, and we got SkyDB rolled out. Um, I think I think it was like. 30 or 60 days um, is one of the one of the fastest. I think it was three weeks until we had a full prototype working. Um, so it's one of the fastest products we've ever launched. And and from there, yeah, we've, we've just been super excited about everything it can do. Hmm. I feel like this project has there's a lot in it. And so I'm wondering if it would make sense to kind of start from what it was. You say it wasn't decentralized storage of files. I always understood Saya as living within the decentralized storage space. I might have been wrong about it, but... Yeah, so Saya was decentralized storage, okay. but it was not decentralized sharing. So you could, you know, if you, if you had like a personal backup, you could put that on Saya um, and then save that. But if, if you wanted to say, you know, create uh, some music and then share it with friends, Saya up until Skynet uh, did not have any way for you to share files on Saya with your friends. Okay. But once you added that feature that you could share, do you think the project in a way became a competitor of some of the other storage solutions? Or do you still see it? Like, I realize that because we're going to go through all of the pieces of it, it gets a lot bigger. But did you think of it like kind of bumping up against what they were doing? Yeah. Um, when, when we initially launched Skynet, uh, which I think the full official launch was late February, we saw Skynet as pretty much a direct IPFS plus Filecoin competitor. So every everything that you thought that could happen on top of IPFS with persistence on Filecoin, Skynet could do. Mm. And then that's they were very comparable. Um, and then when SkyDB came out, um, Skynet's capabilities significantly surpassed that stack. Does it have a like a very different structure from IPFS and Filecoin, or is it like? Is it using any of the same techniques? No, I think um, we've made a ton of different design decisions from the ground up around building Saya. Mm. Um, and that's what's enabled us to be so flexible in adding new features and launching faster. We've, we've been much more um, 
just in our design philosophy, much more oriented around uh, the storage layer first rather than the routing layer first and uh, more oriented around performance, making sure that the theoretical optimal performance was approaching that of centralized networks. And then also just constantly looking for ways to make things faster to implement and cheaper to implement, which Filecoin has such a large budget, I don't think they feel the same pressure that we do, Mm. where if we look at something and we're like, oh, this would take six months to implement, uh, that's just not something that we ever have budget for. And so we we just put it on the perma shelf until we come up with a, you know, smarter or more clever way (laughs) to get the same thing done. Um, And I think that's given us a, a really significant edge, actually. Cool. So kind of like breaking down the tech stack a little bit, uh, we started off with Saya, which is distributed file storage. We have Skynet, which allowed people to share those files. Uh, what would you say SkyDB adds to that stack that IPFS and Filecoin don't have? It allows you to share an identity with someone else where that identity resolves to a bunch of mutable files. I guess that's not the cleanest way of putting it, but basically I can say, hey, James, this is my Twitter feed. Um, and so you you receive a public key and you can use that key to look at everything I've posted on Twitter. And if you check it a day later, you'll see all my new content. And so that's something that uh, IPFS can't do. IPFS is all in hashes and it's, it's something that Skynet does uh, at, at a high performance level. And all, all layer two. There's no, there's no on-chain posting to make this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would be uh, like similar to the IPNS system that never really caught on, right? Yeah, um, and I can't claim to understand IPNS super well, but I think if it was, if IPNS was a lot more performant um, and a lot more efficient, that it may be similar. Mm-hmm. So you said uh, mutable files. So these. Uh, unlike IPFS, these can be updated over time, right? Uh, yep. And you're delegating access to me. You're sharing these to me with a public key. Can you also give me the ability to edit or update these files? I could. I think generally uh, it's uh, that's not going to be uh, a goal. But for example, we could do some sort of Diffie-Hellman or just any any out-of-band technique. We could generate a shared key. And we could have a shared space where either of us could update it. But I think I think more interesting is um, rather than people updating each other's data, is applications updating each other's data, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I you know I was one of the like ten users of the Keybase file system, and uh, I really miss that short sort of uh, shared folder, that shared directory model of collaborating with friends. Got it. Yeah. So that's something that's definitely possible to build. Um, and I think there is one project that's kind of looking in that direction called Skyspaces. And so maybe maybe you would find something similar there. But also, if you know, if you're willing to uh, pull out your JavaScript console, um, <laughs> it could be a, an application that you build yourself. Would that I had time? Yeah. <laughs> you just mentioned this other project. Like, is Skynet DB or Skynet the entire project? Is that sort of a like is is the expectation that there will be projects building on top of this independently that are very much like are they building kind of the core parts of it or are these more like dap for lack of a better word type things yeah i mean i th- i think you could compare it to the ethereum ecosystem where you have um you kind of have the core team that works on the vm and adding instructions and 
um, and works on things like ETH2 and scalability. And then you have all these ecosystem teams like Compound or Sushi or Uniswap that are building what a lot of people would consider to be core infrastructure of the Ethereum ecosystem, right? Just because Uniswap's not built by the core team directly uh, doesn't mean that it's not super important to the space. Mm. And uh, so that's kind of what Skynet is. You have, you know, uh, SkyID, which is this uh, identity system on top of Skynet. That's completely third party and something that we've we've been involved in to the extent that sometimes we we help guide them make decisions. But, uh, you know, someone else made made the implementation and so, someone else did most of the design work. Um, and then we have something else, Skyfeed. It's a decentralized Twitter. Um, and same thing, the, the core team actually has been very little involved other than uh, they're just constantly telling us ways that... Um, ways that we can make it better, ways that we can make it easier for them to build a really powerful Skynet-based Twitter. Um, we have a we have you know alternatives to Dropbox as well, and and these um, huh. this ecosystem starting to get more and more collaborative and and more and more expressive. So you mentioned this example of a sort of a, a new Twitter built on top of the Skynet system. What can we go a little bit deeper into what that is? What would that even look like? And what features of this Skynet actually allows for such a thing to be built? Yeah, so it's it's super interesting. And on, honestly, I thought that Twitter would be one of the last things to get built because there's you you need to you need masterful use of many different pieces of Skynet. But this developer, uh, his name is Red Solver, he has pulled it off, and he's he's demonstrated that he's quite adept with all of the Skynet tooling. Um, and so basically what happens is that on, on Skynet, each Twitter account or on Skyfeed, each Twitter account is a bucket of data owned by a single user and controlled by a single user. And so when that user makes a post, they update their bucket of data to include the post. When they follow someone, they update that bucket of data to include who they follow. And so when they log in, they look at their own bucket of data and assemble their feed. And if they follow a bunch of people, when you follow someone, you actually, you know, record where their bucket of data is. Um, and so you scan their bucket of data and see what, what have they posted. And if, if you want to find more people to follow, you can check out who they're following. And so you get this like nice decentralized web, almost like a mesh net um, mm. of content that is fully decentralized. Everyone's in control of their own data, but everyone can see everything else that everyone else is doing. So uh, walk me through this a little bit. Uh, when I use Skyfeed, I'm going to connect to some server to load the UI, right? Yep. Okay. And the UI is going to check my Skynet bucket and see all of my uh, tweets and who I'm following, right? Yep. After you've logged in. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, from there, it goes out to everyone I'm following and retrieves all of their tweets and who they're following, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, makes sense. Um, so instead of querying Twitter's server over and over to get all of these things and to get the curated feed that Twitter gives you, you're going to get a raw view into what the other users have chosen to publish. That's correct. And then the front end is going to filter it or adjust it, you know, however, however it deems to present a feed to you. So the, to mm. the end user, it looks like Twitter. But the truth is mm -hmm. all of that code and curation is happening on the user's machine, which means they have the freedom to, to choose a different front end if they want. Mm. 
does the user get to choose the depth at which they look into that network in a way? Like, do you say like, oh, I'm going to look at three people's data and their followers and not further? Or does it kind of go all the way through? Like, I'm just trying to understand, like, at what at what point, like, is this just a setting that you can choose or? So it's a setting that could be added. I believe right now it just goes to a depth of one. Okay. Um, but if someone felt that it would be a better experience to have a depth of two, you could make an alternative uh, presentation to SkyFeed that goes a little bit deeper. Hmm. And this, I think, is actually a, a super important point and one of the key things that makes Skynet so much more competitive than the centralized web, which is that if, if you have an idea on how to make Twitter better, your only hope of trying that out in the real Twitter environment is by convincing Twitter to adopt your idea, um, which is, of course, not is it's not a practical thing unless you're high up in the Twitter staff. But on Skynet, if you have an idea like, let's say, what, what if we follow to, you know, infinite depth and just see what happens? That's something that you as a developer can just go ahead and implement. And and because it's all open data and completely permissionless, um, when you launch that you know, alternative or, or that different Twitter implementation, right on day one, you have all the users and all the followers and, and all the access. You have a super rich environment. And that's just not something you can do on the centralized web. Hmm. How does this compare, though, to like, projects that happened before like mastodon do you remember this yeah um <laughs> and mastodon is a project that i think has done a very incredible job of treading the line between federation and decentralization and mm -hmm. also like a really clean ux I, th I think that they tackled a very difficult problem and did a very incredible job of, of solving it well so the main difference between skyfeed and mastodon is that mastodon is federated yeah. And what that means is that as a user, you sign up on someone else's server and that someone else has full control over what happens to your account. Um, and so Mastodon, it's it's called the Fediverse. You know, there are somewhere between dozens and hundreds of servers that users use. And any one of them could go offline and take a thousand users with it. Wow. Um, but one of them can't go offline and take the whole thing down. Um, and so it's it's much better than Twitter but it's still this situation where the average user on Mastodon doesn't have control themselves. Mm -hmm. they, they delegate control to someone else. Whereas mm -hmm. on Skynet, every single user has control themselves and also does not need to worry about running their own node at home. Uh, so Mastodon could be fully decentralized if every single user ran their own Mastodon instance. And on Skynet, you don't need to do that. I... Uh... You know, I ran a Mastodon instance for a little while, um, way back when it was much newer. And, you know, what I figured out very quickly about myself is I was not willing to go through the maintenance effort to keep it up to date uh, in order to participate in this relatively small social community. So it sounds like the argument you're making is that hosting it on Skynet kind of resolves that problem, right? is it's no longer up to the individuals to do the server maintenance. It's handled by Skynet. Yes. Um, and so the the like really nice trick is that Skynet portals can do all the maintenance and management on behalf of the user while still ensuring that the user has full control. Um, at any time, a user can switch to a different portal and the experience will be completely seamless. All their data will be the same. 
um, and and everything is still under their control. And if a portal goes rogue um, and wants to do a lot of damage to the ecosystem, it actually has no power to do so because everything is controlled by the users. Um, and I will say I'm cheating a little bit here because on the traditional web, web browsers don't have the primitives necessary to you know, double check that the portal is giving you the code it's supposed to be, et cetera. Um, so we are, we are assuming a little bit that the web browser gets upgraded to be able to do the cryptography with the portals that is necessary. Mm. Um, I, I, I might be completely off here, but something about the setup that you described reminded me a little bit of like scuttlebutt. <laughs> is that totally wrong? Just the idea, like the messaging and the way it sort of propagates. Is there any connection or am I completely in a different realm? No, I mean, I think I think there are good parallels to Scuttlebutt. Um, and, and that is another project that I um, have spent a lot of time looking at. And, and I would say it uh, has done a very good job of achieving a nice trade-off between user experience, decentralization, and just technological complexity. I think Scuttlebutt does a lot for how simple it is. Mm. Um, and, and that's a remarkable feat. But again, Scuttlebutt needs an instance. E- each user kind of has to run a Scuttlebutt instance and maintain that. Whereas on Skynet, we've managed to get away from the need for users to run instances. I, I also have run a you know Scuttlebutt instance for a while. I think that there are a lot of parallels between Scuttlebutt and Skyfeed in that you kind of traverse a social graph. So you connect to your friends and retrieve their uh, feed. But I, I do think that the the fact that you don't have to run an instance is going to be huge for this. Uh, people hate running code. <laughs> I think that that's also one of the one of the big things we realized for our six years of maintaining Saya. Um, we just kind of felt, especially near the end of the six years, that it was too much effort to get people to run a Saya daemon. And I think for for most of those six years, we were very optimistic that we could get to a world where every Every machine had a Saya daemon on it, but I think it's much better that we can get away from that and that no nobody needs to run anything. You just use your normal web browser. Or, or at least it all runs on someone else's computer. Yeah. Another project that came to mind when you were talking about ID, identity, was, and I this again might be a little bit off, but it was Urbit. Is there any connection like in the way that you're kind of designing this, this very like multi-leveled ecosystem? Is it in any way similar to that? Uh, I think we're probably less similar to Urbit. Uh, my co-founder, uh, Luke, is a huge Urbit fan. He owns, I, I want to say, an entire solar system, <laughs> okay, um, or maybe even one level up from that. But he owns he owns a lot of Urbit real estate, um, and he's a big fan. But I think uh, from our end, Urbit is just a little bit too out there. Um, and it, So we, we ended up not pulling too many of Urbit's ideas. Uh, just because we we felt that that something less less out there would be more effective. Um, one of the other topics that was like in the kind of announcement blog for Skynet, there's this mention of recursive content monetization, uh, and I think this is sort of separate from the Twitter example. Can you tell me something about that? Yeah, so this is uh, the the final piece of Skynet, the big idea that we have not implemented yet. Um, we're actually waiting for some more traditional like tech stuff to be implemented. But the fundamental idea of recursive mon- content monetization is that you can tag a monetary fee 
into any file, which includes code, any file or piece of code running on Skynet that people will pay every time they either load that file or use that code. Um, and the reason it's recursive is because, let's say I upload a photograph of, let's say, just a beautiful picture of the Boston skyline to Skynet, and I tag a little fee on it. And then someone else uses that photograph in a video that they make. So now that video is charging a fee, but since it's using my photograph, it's also charging a fee for that photograph. Um, and then if someone, say, embeds that video into a blog post, when a user reads that blog post, they are paying for the blog post and also paying for the video and also paying for the photograph. And so you get this long chain of monetization where content that, that pulls from a lot of different creative energies uh, also pays into all of those creative energies. And so it's, um, it's an alternative way to monetize the internet. Mm. Is, it, is that using the Saya coin then? Yeah, so that would be using Saya coin. Um, and there's no reason it has to be Saya coin. It's just that uh, Saya already has an incredibly sophisticated payment network on top of it. Uh, per, perhaps the most sophisticated L2 payment network in the world. And it's very easy and it's something we're super familiar with. So it's just very easy for us to leverage that payment network to do the monetization. The only kind of equivalent I can think of in that regard would be like something like Brave, but they do more ad feeds. Here it's really like payment for content, but then is it is it sort of like a subscription? Like, would you end up, you'd have to hold this token because if you viewed a photo, you'd have to then pay something? Or is it like, is it sort of happening in the background? Yeah, so to, we want it to be frictionless for the user. Um, so we don't want the user to be thinking about the photo they're paying for every time they load a page. Um, I hate so the, thinking about paying people. <laughs> people hate <laughs> pain people on the internet yeah so we've tried to we've tried to come up with a model um and, and again this is you know this is subject to actual real world testing we we haven't deployed it yet um, but the model we have right now is a freemium model where the portals do all the pays you go stuff and so the portal just like say um an internet provider an isp is paying metered rates for everything that's happening but then to the user the portal's presenting just a flat rate. And that flat rate doesn't have to be paid in a cryptocurrency. It could be paid using a credit card, you know, Square or something mm. or Venmo. Um, and so a user signs up for a portal. If they don't pay any money at all, they're on the free account. They get, you know, a, a moderate amount of bandwidth. And let's say a, a photo costs 10 cents um, to load. All that's going to happen is for that user, that photo might take 20 or 30 seconds to load. Oh, um, but if the user is paying $5 a month, now that photo is going to take half a second to load because the portal knows that the user has uh, has some money in the account um, and that the portal is kind of breaking even on that. And oh. so we encourage users to pay monthly to the portal and then the portal worries about the actual per instance rates. It's the, it's the speed. That's an interesting angle. It's the load yeah. speed. It's kind of like the way that, you know, ISP, there's, there was talk a few years ago, I think they actually did pass this law where the ISPs can now change the rate of download depending on the companies that did that pass that passed, right? Uh, 
I want to say it passed for mobile data, maybe. Okay. Um, I know the general topic is net neutrality, and I know yeah. it's a, a yeah. big item of battle. But in this case, it is like on an individual level, you can actually pay for faster access. And even though I realize behind the scenes, it's purposefully like slowed down. It's not because of a lack of bandwidth or something, but it's interesting. It's sort of just, I wonder how the users would actually take that in because I do know like getting people to pay for content is hard. Getting people to either watch ads for money hasn't totally landed. I feel like it, it's been floated, but it hasn't really worked, but I haven't heard this example, this idea that you would like slow down the absorption. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think that it's actually a myth that getting people to pay for content is hard. And I think this myth is refuted by services like Netflix, HBO, Disney+, Plus, um, and then even services like Steam and Spotify um, and YouTube Premium um, are all services that are, that are very successful in getting high amounts of user subscriptions. Um, and so I really think that it comes down to the experience of paying. How often are you paying? Does it feel at the at the very moment that you pay for it, does it feel like you're getting something valuable in return? And then, you know, is the credit card most mostly out of the way once, you know, you pay one time and then you never think about it ever again um, and you, you just do what you want. So I I really think that there's a way to get users to pay for things as, as long as they feel like they're getting value. And it's it's um, a very fluid, smooth experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there are plenty of examples of internet companies doing this well. It's it's interesting that you bring up all these traditional content services uh, because they have all pretty much converged onto the monthly recurring payment model, right? Yes, which is also why we are uh, targeting a monthly recurring payment model. Um, so uh, I, I think like the difficulty isn't getting people to pay for content. It's making it a per access payment adds an unnecessary amount of like management and emotional overhead to these payments, right? And we've aggregated onto this monthly model, uh, in, in my opinion, because it makes the uh, like amount of thought the user puts into it the minimal possible amount. I yes, um, and I and I think I would agree with that. And it's it's very important, and that's that's why we went with the speed because it's like somehow we have to discriminate at the service level between very expensive photographs and and very low cost photographs because um, we need you know we need users on different service levels to be able to access these differently. But we also we didn't want an ecosystem where you know some content was only available to the highest paying users. We, we kind of wanted everything to be available to everyone. It's just a question of, and similar, similar to the ads, if you're on the free service, ads are really just a proxy for slower access to the video. Mm. Um, and so just That's by true. giving you actual slower access in lieu of ads and, and giving you the option to upgrade out of it, I think we create something much healthier. And, and of course, ads aren't off the table. We could, we could inject ads to pages through the portals um, I'm really not a fan of that, but mm-hmm. um, it's also it's it's something anyone could do. The the portals are open source. Wouldn't there be kind of a worry though if you had this lag that people would doubt the performance? I mean, if it wasn't clearly articulated to them beforehand, if they sort of stumbled into this. Yeah, um, I think that is something we 
we're going to have to be wary of um, and, and kind of build a, a common sense culture around. Mm. What is a portal exactly? Like you sort of mentioned this recursive content monetization portal, but what like would that be a Netflix? Would that be a newspaper? Like I'm trying to picture what the thing that the person actually visits would even be. Yeah, so I would I would think of it similar to like an ISP um, in the sense that it's not actually making any content itself. All it's doing is it's giving you access. And so there are a bunch of them. You can pick whichever one makes the most sense for you. They all have, you know, different pricing structures um, and maybe even different data caps. But you find one that makes sense for you. You sign up with that that portal. And then basically now you have access to Skynet. Is it sort of whatever's published behind that portal or all of it? It's just your, all of your, it. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's just the portal into it. I got the word now. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, so kind of where, you know, each Mastodon server is providing a slightly different service, right? Uh, your account is homed on that server. Mm. All of these portals should be providing the same service. Yes. Um, with, with the exception that like the speeds might be different, but in terms of the data itself, that's all going to be identical. And, and same thing, if you switch from one portal to another, all of your data automatically follows you. You don't you don't have to do this transfer where one portal's, you know, shipping shipping mm-hmm. your data over to the other. It's just it's already all on Skynet. And so the portal can just log you in and and your stuff's already good to go. I wanna talk a little bit about um this idea of sort of Skynet and privacy, especially because you talked about this identity. And I wondered like, what is the approach to privacy? We've talked a lot about distributed systems and decentralization. But yeah, I'm wondering if if that's also incorporated into this. Yeah, so we have privacy on the roadmap. Um, and we, we've actually had it on the roadmap for a long time. Um, but our opinion right now is that it adds a lot of engineering complexity. And the situation is way better in, in 2021 than it was in 2016. Um, so the number of hoops that we need to jump through as engineers to make Skynet private is a lot less than it would have been five years ago. And and so kind of oh, our cool. hope is that five years from now, um, it's easy. <laughs> the hoops will be less again. Yeah. And we keep we keep having these big breakthroughs, even on the privacy front. Like we recently figured out how to do um, fully private payment channels over Skynet, which is something that you could do with onion routing, but like onion routing is a big mess. Now we now we can do it with what we're calling a probabilistic Chamian bank. Um, and that's more than I want to go into right now. But the point is, it's way, way easier to make a probabilistic Chamian bank than it is to do onion routing. Um, and so that gives us, you know, that's that's one piece of the privacy puzzle. But of course, the the challenge with privacy is that if you have, you know, nine out of 10 pieces that are perfect, and then the 10th piece is like just a little bit short, you generally end up with zero privacy at all. And so we we don't want to start, you know, putting the early pieces in place until we see the whole picture and we know that all of them uh, can be, you know, the whole system can be made really airtight. Uh, we're not, we're not there yet. We don't know how to do that yet. Okay. Are you, are you researching or looking into the latest in zero knowledge proof stuff or are you, is that sort of off the table for now? Yeah. So we, um, uh, we attended a workshop with, with Starkware. Um, and so Starks are something we're, we're keeping a close eye on. The, the two major things I really like about Starks are, one, there's no trusted setup. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two, mm-hmm. um, 
they're in a they're just in a really convenient trade-off space for us. Um, the proving time for complex uh, and repetitive programs is really good. And then the proof size is large, but uh, on a giant data network, um, having a, a bit of data is not a problem. And so I, I think for Skynet, Starks are much further along in terms of meeting our needs than anyone else. Um, but in general, we are we're keeping an eye on the space as a whole. And I wouldn't I wouldn't really say we're doing a ton of work. But we are we're we're watching where it's growing and, mm-hmm. and we're kind of updating our internal roadmap as as people keep coming up with with new things in the in the zero knowledge space. Cool. That's actually, David, I think that's where you and I met in person for the first time. Uh, it was at this in uh, Tel Aviv at the Starkware sessions. And you were basically giving a talk on why trusted setups were the worst. <laughs> I think yes. something along uh, those lines. I, I think that's correct. <laughs> And now I actually maybe I understand a little bit more where you were coming from uh, on that in that talk. So, David, we, we talked a, earlier a bit about how Skyfeed can have multiple different UIs with different behavior. Um, maybe some of them display only people you're following. Maybe they display uh, two levels deep. I think this abstraction of the view of data from the data itself is really important. Would you mind talking about it a little more with respect to like uh, examples of photos or videos or other kinds of data, not just tweets? Yeah, so I, I think a, a simple example would be um, if you had like a decentralized Instagram and you also had a camera that was connected to Skynet, um, you could set up your camera to automatically post things to Instagram uh, on your behalf. But I, I think another really interesting place that this all converges is, for example, messaging. Right now, we have this kind of giant mess on the internet where every every single app has its own messaging toolkit, and none of the messages are consistent across applications. Um, whereas on Skynet, since you can write to other applications' data, you can actually, you could just have a single inbox and Twitter could write to your global inbox, you know, optionally. If if Twitter wants its own messaging system, that's something it could pursue. But if it wanted, if it wanted to just let you from the app talk to everyone else uh, in your normal inbox, it could also do that. And so I think that's an example of something where we have the same thing repeated over and over and over, and just a bunch of messy silos. Where on the Skynet model, um, it could be a much more coherent picture. When those Web2 projects were being built, did they build themselves that way because they couldn't interconnect better? Part of it is that it's difficult um, because everyone needs to get on a similar standard and, and protocols become a, protocols are a much bigger deal in the centralized web than they are in the decentralized web because if someone wants to talk their own language, it's just they can make their language incompatible with with. The languages that other people are talking but i think another issue is that like you get giants like facebook that want to capture the network effects facebook would consider it a very bad thing if you could talk to your facebook groups on twitter mm-hmm. uh, because that's one less reason to visit the facebook website and in the skynet world uh, facebook doesn't have any control over that if twitter wants to have your facebook group inside the twitter app it can do that and Facebook can't do anything about it. Mm. And so I think a big part of the challenge with the centralized web is that you get these giants who build a network effect and all they want is to maintain it in every way possible. They don't like sharing 
And Skynet just forces that sharing to happen. When you start to think about what that decentralized world actually looks like, it it's so wild to imagine businesses in the way that we know them existing in that space. Like they have to completely rethink, you know, walled gardens and the kind of competitive warlike mentality that they often have in their industries. I get the sense. Or actually, given the human spirit, they'd probably find new ways to create walled gardens despite the decentralized nature. But yeah, it's a, it's a really like it's an interesting uh, space to think about what could be. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that Skynet is set up to succeed and is set up to win is because in the centralized web, businesses' ability to create moats is very harmful to innovation. Um, it makes it a lot more difficult for aspiring entrepreneurs to enrich people's lives because they can't, you know, they can't access the Facebook walled garden um, except inside of the the Facebook cradle. Mm -hmm. And but on Skynet, um, if you have an innovative idea, you can push it out into the world in a matter of weeks and start enriching people's lives immediately. Um, and so this this innovation just has a much much lower barrier to entry. And I think the amount of interesting new stuff that's produced inside of the Skynet world will be so fast um, and, and just be something that the centralized world cannot keep up with at all. And, and that's what's going to let Skynet bulldoze everything else is that it, it's not that users care anything about decentralization. It's that the builders and the entrepreneurs realize that with the decentralization, they can just make so much more powerful applications than they can in the centralized world that that's that's where all the smart people are going to go. And that's where all the attention is going to be. So you mentioned this earlier when we were talking about the name Skynet and the idea that we should kind of be taking this seriously. So you just gave an example of like an amazing future, amazing outcome where entrepreneurs are set, set free. But you did mention that there's this ominous nature associated with the name and potentially releasing unstoppable things. Let's talk a little bit about that. So you did choose to name the project that. Is that something that you are are worried about? Is that something you can actually mitigate from where you are? Yeah, so I think I think recent events um, underscore that very well, which is that, you know, it's it's early 2021. Donald Trump is about to be out of office. Joe Biden's about to be sworn in. And this platform called Parler is experiencing this major deplatforming. And in the Skynet world, there would be no deplatforming of Parler. It would be extremely difficult to take the infrastructure away from Parler. And so if you have this uh, area where incredible radicalization is happening and no tooling that allows you to get in there and interfere with it, that's an example of, of somewhere where this might be able to spin out of control. Mm -hmm. But I would say in general, I, I think that a lot of the radicalization we struggle with today comes from the nature of centralized feeds. These, these feeds are presented to you by Twitter, by Facebook, by TikTok, and they are on running on machine learning algorithms that are designed to increase engagement, increase susceptibility yeah. to ads and, and brand manipulation. And it just so happens that humans get engaged a lot more when they're enraged. And so even though, you know, Twitter is not top down saying like, let's make people really angry. Twitter is top down saying, let's let's make people really active. Mm -hmm. And the machines are finding out if we make them really angry at each other, they're really active. 
Um, and by decentralizing and giving users the ability to pick their own feed, right? When on decentralized Twitter, I pick my feed algorithm, not Jack picks my feed algorithm. And that means that I can select feed algorithms that are healthier for my psyche. Um, and so, yeah, I do think, you know, in a in the fully dystopian version, you have things like Parler and, and Skynet uh, creates unstoppable extremism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all these extremists have these just wonderful safe houses um, that they can build ideas and plot and then and scheme and then cause chaos. But I do think that what's actually going to happen is that we're going to jettison um, the model that's that's causing all of this extremism in the to first start. place. It's crazy. As you say that, I just realized how much like the algorithms that like, especially the AI driven algorithms, it's like they are sadly a like a very harsh mirror to the human spirit they're holding up. The fact is you get more energized, more excited, you know, more focused, more active if you are angry. I mean, I I think we all kind of knew that, but now it's like unmasked scale shown, demonstrated. The thing is, in that sort of decentralized model, though, wouldn't you still potentially have things like governance for those tools? Like, does the fact that it's distributed mean there's actually no oversight? Yeah, so the the key here is that the oversight happens at the discretion of the governed. Mm. And I think, I think this is a really important point that a lot of people miss, is decentralization does not mean a free-for-all where anyone can do anything they want to anyone else. Decentralization is about putting you, the end user, in control. And so if if you're thinking to yourself, hmm, you know, I just never want to see any nudity ever. In a decentralized world, you can set up moderation and you can subscribe to moderators and you can you can build a world where your world will never have any nudity in it ever. Hmm. Um, And even though it's decentralized, nobody nobody can get that in front of you. And so same thing. Communities that don't want radicalization inside of them will have the power to reject radicalization. But the other side of that coin is that communities that do want radicalization will have the power to protect that radicalization. So just just as I have the power to protect my uh, immunity to nudity, they have the power (laughs) to protect their their ability to you know talk talk about radical things to each other yeah i think you just you just brought up a really great point though about how like the systems that exist now are more to blame than the existence of potentially like hard to find edges of the internet channels for people to connect like it's not their ex- the existence of those channels is not the problem necessarily the problem is that these large entities have been pushing us to just consume more content we consume more content of things we are into and we want to see in a way even if it's sad or disturbing or enraging or nudity yeah i mean we even have a term for it now right we call it doom (laughs) Doom scrolling. scrolling yeah i was really really good over the last few months to not do that to just ignore the u.s where i'm not from because i have no control anyway but then in the last two weeks, it's been very hard. <laughs> I fell off the wagon. <laughs> it's sad. I'm annoyed. Yeah. But it is an interesting behavior to observe when you do it because you're like, damn it. <laughs> what a waste of time. And why am I so bored that I'm doing that? Like, I must be bored or something. Yeah. 
But I, I do wonder, like, that, that idea of choice is, it's very appealing. But I wonder, like, if you can narrow down your world that much, is that also good? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, like, what I just described before, like, my boredom, it's almost like because I did that. Because I just just wanted to see the stuff that I, for some weird reason, wanted to see. Like, this kind of stuff that's going over, going on in the U.S. And... I, it didn't make me happier. I wasn't like, I wasn't actually learning that much. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good question. And um, I think that's something that the creators on Skynet, the people who are building the Twitters and the and the YouTubes of the future, you know, it's, it's going to be up to them to figure out the optimal point between like stimulation and education and, uh, and, and just how much of a filter bubble should we have? Because I, I do think filter bubbles are probably a good thing in at least a little bit of moderation, but now, now we have mm-hmm. control. And if we want, we can have a, you know, a, a completely impenetrable filter bubble. And is that a good thing? Is that what users are going to choose? I don't know. And I, I think that's an open question and, and something that I'm, I'm excited because I'm optimistic that we will find the right answers, but I, I am also aware that there are lots of wrong answers that we could end up on. Hmm. Cool. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. It was, uh, I had a blast and I, I think we covered a lot of really interesting things. <laughs> totally. And uh, I'm very excited to see what comes next with Skynet. I, especially, I, I'm particularly curious to see how this content, recursive content monetization plays out. Do you have any timeline on when that stuff would actually land? Yeah, we're hoping to have it uh, completely deployed in March. Um, we're Oh, the the main struggle right now is actually just accepting traditional payments. Um, in the crypto world, it's like really easy. You just send an address, you get money. But in the traditional world, it's like Stripe is like, no, we don't do crypto. And then Square is like, oh, oh yes. we only service Japan in the US and all of our customers are in Europe, right? And then you have like these accounts and you have to manage the payments. So it's all this all this like stuff that plenty of companies have solved before that's actually proving to be more annoying um, than the decentralized versions of them. So that that's what's holding us back. But as soon as that's done, uh, yeah, I'm thinking March is a reasonable timeline for monetization to be ready to go. Cool. I mean, March sounds very close and not completely surprising that it's, it's these traditional payment systems that are the holdup. But good luck with that, David, and uh, hope to welcome you back sometime. Thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here and I, I hope to be back soon. Cool. And James, thanks so much for co-hosting again. Or actually, no, this, this is the first time you co-host. Thank you for co-hosting. Oh, anytime. <laughs> cool. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.